0: Bull chicks are here To slay, stop
1: you bald and balding people and welcome back to those bald chicks your favorite alopecia podcast i'm paige and i'm here with our second to last guest for the podcast dr katherine saucy who is a board certified dermatologist based in new orleans louisiana she has a passion to educate in regards to all things dermatology and skincare, and she is here with me today to go over the medical side of things when it comes to alopecia and answer the many questions you have all submitted on our story questioning So welcome, Dr. Saucy, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's so great to have someone that has seen the medical side of it. We we talked about it when Kristen was on the podcast before she left. We talked about it for so long, and I was like, oh, I have to do this before I end the podcast. So thank you. I appreciate it. If you would like to first take us through how long you've been a dermatologist and your history with that, that'd be great. Yeah, so I
0: am a dermatologist based in New Orleans, Metairie area. I went to LSU for med school, Tulane Dermatology for residency, and I am now out in private practice for two years, and I work with Sunova Dermatology.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's great. I Man, it's been a a minute since I've been to a dermatologist for my alopecia, but man, when was the last appointment that I had? I think I was 24 when I went for my last alopecia appointment, but yeah, so awesome. Thanks for being here. The first couple of questions that I have are just in regards to kind of going to the dermatologist. So the first one is, have you had any patients with alopecia or hair loss in general before?
0: Yes. So I see at least one patient coming in complaining of hair loss or experiencing hair loss at least once a day. I think I looked at my schedule for tomorrow and I've got three on there. So this is something that's very common. I commonly see it in clinic and I know so many other dermatologists do as
1: well. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's actually wild. I didn't expect that. (laughs) So that's, that's crazy because I remember when I first went, I asked her and she was like, yeah, I think I have like five or six patients. But then again, that was probably like 10 or 11 years ago. So I feel like more people are coming out talking about alopecia, even like celebrities and everyone's talking about it more than they did 10 years ago. So that's probably why dermatologists yes. are seeing more if someone were to come to your office here's my second question and wondering if they have alopecia if someone like me I went to the hairdresser and they said oh you have a bald spot in the back of your head you should go see a dermatologist for that What does that typical first appointment look like and what could that person expect during that appointment
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I Every dermatologist, I feel like, handles hair loss a little differently. How I handle it in my practice, I actually dedicate an appointment specifically to hair loss. So sometimes I'll have patients come in for their full body skin check, and they'll also want to talk about hair loss. And for me, hair loss is so specific to the person and takes a lot of time in the sense that you're talking about their medical history. You're talking about their recent illnesses and surgeries or stressful life events. You're looking at their recent blood work or you're ordering blood work just to see if there's anything systemically going on. So for me in my practice, hair loss is a specific dedicated appointment. So we can fully focus on that. Sometimes we actually have to do a hair biopsy to diagnose what specific type of hair loss they have. Hmm. So a first appointment, typically patient basically comes in. They say they're experiencing hair loss. I sit down with the patient and I get a really good thorough history of their hair loss journey. Is this something that's happened acutely over the last few months? Is this something that's been gradually happening over the last five to 10 years? What is their family history? And I think we'll get into that at some point too. There are a couple different hair disorders that actually have some genetic or hereditary component, which is important. We talk about things like recent pregnancies, Um, People often females will experience some hair shedding after pregnancy, after major surgeries, being very sick, having COVID was a huge um, trigger for hair loss. Yeah. And then alopecia areata, and we'll talk about this too, is also linked to other autoimmune diseases. So some patients will come in and they'll say, you know, have atopic dermatitis, for example, and they start experiencing alopecia areata, which are patches of hair loss. So when you come in, You can expect to have a really good medical history, family history. We go through medications, recent life events. I'll often ask if they have any recent blood work and take a look at that, or I'll order it myself. We'll do a really thorough hair exam where I'll use my dermatoscope, which is basically a handheld microscope to look at the hair follicles as best we can, and then might even consider a biopsy. And then we kind of shift into the treatment aspect.
1: Interesting. So with the hair follicles, do you see anything different with people with alopecia? Obviously there's some types of alopecia where they don't have any at all, but is there like for areata, that's what I have. Is there a difference in hair follicle between someone with just normal hair?
0: Yeah, so if you look on dermoscopy and you're looking at alopecia areata, there are a couple classic findings that we see. One are explanation exclamation point hair, so you can actually see a tapering of the hair follicle in kind of that opposite direction. There you can also see what we call yellow dots around the hair follicle openings, and then as the hair regrows, it often regrows in a very thin, often like a white, yellowish kind of appearance as the hair regrows.
1: Sure. Yeah, that's, that's wild. I d- I never knew that there was, there would be a difference. But that makes sense, obviously, because everyone that has hair loss that I've talked to are always like, I wonder what specifically is going on with my hair follicles that is making my hair grow out? Or is it something in my genes? Or everyone is always talking about that in the hair loss community, because we're all so kind of up in the air, like what happened? Because I know I don't have anybody in my family that has alopecia. But I have tons of people that have autoimmune conditions. So okay you never know, you know,
0: sometimes I often don't do biopsies for alopecia areata, but if you were to look under the microscope and do a hair biopsy, you would kind of see classic findings of inflammatory cells around the hair bulb in the bottom of the hair follicle, yeah. which is also diagnostic of alopecia areata.
1: Oh, interesting. So what kind of hair loss do you have to have to have a biopsy typically?
0: So that's really a personal decision based on a a medical decision with each dermatologist. For me, I often am not biopsying alopecia areata. Usually I'm biopsying more lichen planopilaris, otherwise known as LPP or FFA, which is frontal fibrosine alopecia. Or if we're really just kind of confused about, hey, this could be a couple different things. You're not responding to therapy. Let's do a biopsy and see if we can get a little more information.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I know a couple of people that do have those types that have gotten biopsies. So I was always curious as to why that was. So yeah, that's interesting. We are actually going to jump into the listener questions too, because there are many, and I love you all for submitting these because I was like, oh no, are people going to submit them? But you guys came out of the woodwork with these. So the first one that we have is how do you find the right dermatologist when looking online? There's so many is what somebody said.
0: Yeah, so this is a great question. I actually get this form of question a lot. Generally speaking, if you are in a more larger city, urban area, you probably have multiple dermatologists to choose from. If you are someone in a smaller city, more rural, or you're an underserved population, your options may or may not be more limited. So First, you kind of have to think about where you are geographically. I really recommend finding a board-certified dermatologist. If you're specifically going for hair loss, you want to have someone that has adequate training in hair loss, knows what to look for, how to treat it. There are letters after board-certified dermatologist's name, and it's F-A-A-D, and that stands for Fellow of the American Academy of Dermatology, which basically means that they are board-certified and they are recognized by our board or our Academy of Dermatology. You can go online to the aad.org website, and they actually have a list of dermatologists. You can look them up in your area if you're trying to kind of limit your search there. And as far as finding a specific dermatologist, again, if you have options to choose from, one of the reasons I went into dermatology and then I find dermatology so cool is that if you have the options, you can really find someone that you vibe with, oh, someone yeah. that you feel like listens to you, takes the time, you know, they are constantly growing and learning from you and with you and you know, on their own time, which I think is so great about dermatology and that patient physician relationship that can
1: last y'all's whole lifetime, which is super neat. It's important to feel comfortable with the person, especially when you're dealing with medical sides of stuff, you want to feel comfortable telling them everything that you're going through. Otherwise Mm -hmm. it's going to be, you're going to forget information or not want to tell that person certain information. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I agree with that. So my next question, is eczema a common issue for people with autoimmune diseases? So
0: if we specifically talk about atopic dermatitis, which is a form of eczema, but atopic dermatitis is the actual diagnosis that has been linked with other autoimmune diseases, specifically even people with alopecia areata, they have been found to be more likely to have atopic dermatitis.
1: What about psoriasis? Because I know that that's in my family. And I was Mm -hmm. always curious about that. I have a couple people with psoriasis. So I was always wondering if there was a connection with that with alopecia.
0: Yeah. So other autoimmune diseases that are tied with alopecia would include, again, atopic dermatitis, thyroid diseases like Hashimoto's, vitiligo, which is loss of pigmentation in the skin, and psoriasis. So those are kind of the four major ones that we think are closely
1: tied to alopecia at this time. Interesting. I always wondered that too, because I'm like, man, I wonder, cause my grandma, which is my dad's mom. And then my dad both deal with that. And I'm wondering if I just got alopecia and I didn't get any skin stuff. I wonder if there's a tie there. I just, I don't know. I'm always so curious about that kind of stuff. So that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, another question is, are some people with trichotillomania not ever going to grow their hair back? So this, unfortunately, this can
0: be true. Um, so trichotillomania is the manual pulling or plucking of the hairs. And if it is stopped early, those hairs typically regrow. However, if this, is, if this is something that's chronic, done over a long period of time, unfortunately not corrected, it is possible for those hair follicles to
1: scar and that hair will not regrow. Sure. Do you know any explanations of why people have that certain type of hair loss?
0: So trichotillomania has been linked to other mental health disorders. So anxiety, depression, even things like, you know, OCD, I would say that a lot of my trichotillomania patients, there's some behavioral component to them. And so really, when we try to treat that, we're trying to focus on the behavioral component and trying to help redirect and support that and usually the trichotillomania component will often resolve when those other things are being addressed.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, that's awesome information. I know there was a couple people in the past that have asked about that, so that's awesome. Um, Another question is, can alopecia areata be prevented in any way? I don't know of any way to prevent that
0: from happening. One, you would have to know that you yourself are either prone to getting it or you're going to get it, which would be really hard in and of itself to determine. So I don't know if there's any way to actually prevent it. If you have a history of alopecia areata, obviously there are medications and other things you can do. But I would say I do not believe
1: there's a way to prevent it. Yeah, I feel like for so many people, too, some people get it when they're born. Some people don't get it until they're adults. Some people I know that have been on the podcast got it when they got pregnant or got it when they got sick one time, like they got severely sick and then they got alopecia. So I feel like it's kind of up in the air with that. Because there's so many different ways people can get alopecia or hair loss in general. So the next question is in regards to the new medication that people can take with alopecia areata. In mm-hmm. regards to Illumiant, is there enough research that has been done? It seems like women lose their hair when they're weaned off of it.
0: So there's actually two now, as of today, there's two FDA approved oral medications for alopecia areata that are approved by the FDA. So one is Illumiant, that's approved for alopecia areata 18 years and older. There's also now Lipfulo, which is FDA approved for ages 12 years and older. So both of these are newer medications in general, and they've been approved by the FDA. So, when it comes to kind of safety, has enough research been done? Obviously, to get these medications through the FDA, there have been multiple extensive trials. That being said, all medications come with potential risk and side effect. And so, I really think the key takeaway when it comes to treating specifically alopecia areata, you know, focused on here with these two medicines, is being aware of those risks and weighing the risk and benefits. Because if you are someone that has alopecia areata, or you know someone close to you that suffered with it, it's a extremely stressful and emotional hair disorder to have. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, are you willing to take those potential risks and side effects in order to regrow your hair? And that's a personal decision that you make, you know, if you're an adult by yourself, or if you're a child with your parents or guardians, as far as when women lose their hair, when they're weaned off of it, so what I always tell patients, people ask this about taking topical minoxidil and using that. They're mm-hmm. like, do I have to use this forever? So it's a question I got get a lot. Do I have to do this treatment forever? And my answer is, so for topical medicines to kind of just give you a comparison here for minoxidil, I say, you're not going to lose your hair because you stopped the minoxidil per se, your hair is going to go back to what it would be. If you were not treating it at that point in time, so people are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose so much hair. You're just, your hair is going to go back to what it was before. When it comes to these oral medicines, I think they haven't been out long enough to really show definitively if you will 100% lose your hair or not. Um, Some people have lost their hair after coming off of it. Some people have not. And I attribute that more to, if you have an autoimmune disease systemically, and you have triggers going on systemically, when you stop that medicine, those pathways are no longer being inhibited. And so when you stop the medicine, it's not necessarily due to stopping the medicine, you're now no longer preventing what was driving your hair loss in the first place. And that may or may not ever go away. So I think at this time, my opinion is, We can't say it's due to the medicine. I think it's more likely due to your underlying systemic autoimmune disease that's no longer being treated. And so the hair loss can come back and it doesn't happen for everyone, but it is a potential possibility.
1: And they're so new, like you said, I feel like with time, there's going to be a better way to figure out if you want to go that route. You know what I mean? Because Mm -hmm. with something so new, you kind of can't make a decision right away, or you can. But for me, I would like to see other people be on it, the results of what they see, uh, how they feel during it, what are the risks and how do they, you know what I mean? Like I, I need more than a trial for me personally so i feel like with time comes those answers when it comes to the medication you can take for alopecia so yeah that was Mm -hmm. great information the next question is what are some long-term side effects of alopecia treatments So it really depends on what treatments we're
0: referring to. If we think about topical medications, I already kind of talked about topical minoxidil. I, again, always tell people your hair could possibly go back to what it would be like if you weren't doing any treatment at that point in time at all, or topical steroids and injecting steroids into the scalp and around the hair follicles. Um, long term can thin the skin or lighten the skin. Luckily on the scalp, it's a, already a very thick layer of skin. So that doesn't happen super commonly. But if it's something you have to be on long term, that can be a side effect. Um, when we talk about hormonal therapy, such as finasteride, dutasteride, spironolactone, Um, I don't know of any maximum amount or a length of time that you can be on these medications. They've been out for a very long time now. I use them almost on a daily basis, and I think they do a great job for supporting hair regrowth or at least hair stabilization. Um, When we think about finasteride in men, so males, um, it has been shown to decrease sperm motility as well as decrease sperm count. It can also lead to possible erectile dysfunction and decreased libido. This often comes back or improves once it is stopped. Um, There are very few case reports that show that this can be a more chronic or permanent thing, but overall, very, very rare, and it's something that can come back with time. So I often counsel patients. I think I've had one patient so far in the last two years that said that they had they experienced a decreased libido while on finasteride, and when we stopped it, it came back, and so um, that's always reassuring. Oral minoxidil. That's the oral version of topical now, very widely used. Um, When first, when you first start taking it, you can experience an increase in heart rate. You can have some lightheadedness or headache. And then long-term you see increased hair growth in other areas of the body. And sometimes you can actually see fluid retention and edema. Again, we're using very low doses. So I have not
1: seen this very often, but it is possible. When you said hormone medication, I have not heard of that one. Is that like did you say hormone therapy when it comes to?
0: So it's wireless? actually uh, it blocks, so if we're talking about finasteride specifically, it actually blocks an enzyme that converts testosterone to dihydrotestosterone or DHT. and that enzyme, that so that medication helps block that conversion. And they think that DHT is actually one of the driving factors for things like androgenetic alopecia, which can be male and female pattern baldness. So that's a medication mm. I use a lot. So when we talk about hormonal therapies, you know, we're not giving someone hormones. Sure. We're helping stop conversions of certain hormones, which has been found to be very helpful. So is it
1: specifically just for that hair loss or do you do, you do it with other types of hair loss as well?
0: We do it with other types of hair loss as well. Um, I don't use it in alopecia areata, but other types of hair loss. Most commonly, I would say androgenetic alopecia, which is male and female pattern baldness, but we also use it in other ones like FFA or LPP sometimes. There's also Plaquenil, which was a big medication during COVID. They thought that that was helpful. Mm-hmm. That's something that I use in lyco, lichen planopilaris. So There are so many different possibilities when it comes to the type of hair loss and the potential treatment that you have so much more research and hopefully more and more medications will come out because this is an area that really could use some more support and more treatment options for patients.
1: Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, you're, you're teaching me so much that I didn't even know. So my next question is what types of moisturizers do you suggest to use on hair loss or shaved heads? Is there a preference to use face versus body versus scalp and hair oils? So I think this is really a personal
0: choice when it comes to moisturizing your scalp. I typically recommend using products that we call non-comedogenic, meaning that they don't clog pores or cause acne. And I think it's really important to moisturize the scalp because you want to support that skin as well. But I just don't want patients to clog hair follicles because when you do that, it can lead to things like one acne, ingrown hairs, folliculitis, which is inflammation and sometimes infection of the hair follicle. Whether you use a face or body moisturizer, if it was my scalp, I would probably just use a very gentle hydrating moisturizing cream to save some money because face moisturizer are often more expensive. Um, So I really don't, I don't think it makes a big difference.
1: Yeah. I know there's a lot of people that are always up in the air with like, what should I put on my head now that I don't have hair? Like I don't want to irritate it. Cause a lot of people that do have alopecia, they we're always kind of itchy when our hair starts Mm -hmm. to fall out and everything. So we want to kind of put moisturizer on it to make it feel better. So yeah, that's, that's great. The next question. Question is, are there any autoimmune diseases that are closely tied to alopecia? I know we touched on that a little bit.
0: Yeah. So atopic dermatitis, thyroid disease, vitiligo, and psoriasis. Those are kind of the four big guns that we think about that are tied to alopecia.
1: Okay. I know I have Renodes too, and I don't know if that is a close tie. Cause I know a couple of people that have it too, that have alopecia, but I don't know if that's like a close tie or if you have seen people with alopecia that have that, but yeah, super. I don't think I have specifically, unless we're
0: talking about people that also have like Sjogren's or lupus. Sure. Um, I've seen hair loss in those patients and they can often have Raynaud's as well. So yeah. they might have another underlying systemic or autoimmune disease or disorder Um, that either hasn't been diagnosed or that's one of their only symptoms.
1: Sure. Yeah. I know when I first had alopecia and I told them, my dermatologist about that, they instantly went to lupus. They're like, okay, we're testing for this because those two tie very close to lupus. All right. For the next question, how would a person know if their hair loss is due to male pattern baldness?
0: So if you came in for a clinic appointment, we would look on clinical exam, the distribution of hair loss, And then we can actually see specific types of hair on dermoscopy, again, using that microscope getting a good family history, and kind of the onset and duration. So often we see this starting prior to age 40, most commonly. There's usually a family history of hair loss or balding in you know fathers, brothers, uncles, grandfathers. The hair loss that we see is typically kind of in the temporal region here. You can also see kind of the vertex and crown of the scalp. So you can see kind of that recession of the hair uh, hairline and then obviously coming from the back as well. And then it's usually gradual in onset of thinning that then leads to loss. And so under the microscope, we can see something called miniaturization of the hair follicles, which actually is the shrinkage of the hair follicles themselves. And you can compare those with full terminal hairs, often side by side under the microscope
1: interesting yeah that's super interesting because I know my brother has male pattern baldness um, which is why we think that it has to be in our history with alopecia with me having areata that those have a close tie because that's the only hair loss is just me and my brother so all right on to the next question let's see does shaving increase hair loss or does frequent combing or washing your hair create hair loss So I don't know
0: of any shaving or washing that would in and of itself create hair loss. I think washing and combing of your hair if you're using gentle methods is perfectly fine. You can wash your hair daily every other day or even less often such as once a week or once every two weeks depending on your hair type um, and needs. Your best bet really is just to help try to avoid hot devices that can burn your hair like hot combs, straighteners, really hot dryers, curlers, and excessive use. So, you yeah. know, doing your hair every once in a while, there's nothing wrong with that. I and mean, if you dry your hair or straighten your hair, you know, you want to just make sure that you're moisturizing and supporting it and, and doing hair masks and other things when possible to kind of help support those hair follicles and hair shafts. But does washing and shaving your hair increase, losing your hair, I do not believe that's the case.
1: Yeah, I I thought so too. I know with traction alopecia, if you have too too tight of hairs or your braids are too tight, I know traction alopecia, you can start losing your hair that way. But Mm -hmm. I knew with like combing and washing, that wasn't a thing. Another question is, is hair loss hereditary?
0: So depending on the type of hair loss, I have definitely seen it run in families, androgenetic alopecia, again, male or female pattern hair loss. That often runs in families. Um, A family history of alopecia areata has also been seen. Further research, I think, is needed in this, but we even have seen some genetic or hereditary components to things such as CCCA, which is central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, which is a type of scarring alopecia and then FFA, which is frontal fibrosing alopecia. So both of those have recently been shown to have some sort of genetic component, but more research needs to be done.
1: Yeah. I do know someone in the hair loss community that I met, I think maybe a year or so ago, her and her mom both have it and they have FFA. So very Mm -hmm. interesting. Another question is, can my birth control pill lead to hair loss? So I kind of see this as
0: a twofold kind of double-edged sword. So certain people on birth control pills can experience hair loss. I usually see that in people taking progesterone only or progesterone containing birth control contraception methods. And that's thought to be because increased progesterone can in some kind of convoluted way also lead to an increase in androgen production, which again, drives certain types of hair loss. On the flip side of that, I've also seen people lose their hair that stop their birth control. And yeah, so I see that a good amount of patients will say, oh, I stopped my birth control. My hair started falling out a few months later. I attribute that mainly because in certain types of birth control, you have an estrogen component or an estrogen derivative, and that actually helps support hair. And so both of these processes kind of, um, have some sort of hormonal adjustment that your body is making, whether it's going on it or coming off it. And it's typically not permanent. Usually your body will adjust with time. um, but I have seen it both ways.
1: That's super interesting. I was going to ask a question. It just popped in my head too. A lot of people have talked in the community that their hair loss could have possibly come on because of stress. Do you think stress obviously adds to it, but do you think it's more like your genes and genetics and everything like that? Or do you think it could be brought on by stress? Is that a possible cause?
0: I do think stress plays a huge component in your hair health and scalp health. I do think it's usually multifactorial. So when I think about stress, you know, whether that's emotional stress and when we think about emotional stress or even stressful life events like being really sick or having surgery or again, having a baby or having COVID or whatever it is, yeah. that form of stress in your body. You know, can then contribute to usually what I'll see is telogen effluvium, which is more of an acute and temporary hair shedding. That's probably what I link most closely to when we call stressful life events. But what causes that stress
1: could be so many different things. Interesting. Is there one type of hair loss that you see more than another, or is it kind of a mix?
0: I would say most often I probably see androgenetic alopecia. Okay. Um, I see a good amount of telogen effluvium, especially over the last few years with COVID and and life, you yeah. know, unfortunately being very stressful sure. um, and lots of life changes for a lot of people. And then alopecia areata is also very common. So those are probably the three I see most commonly.
1: I swear I, I could have a laundry list of questions for you just because there's so many to be answered and there's so many like what ifs or, you know, you probably know all about it. But yeah, hair loss is a beast of its own. And we all know that in the community, it's I mean, I know some people that started off with Ariata and then it progressed to something else or vice versa. They they started off with universalis and then went back to Ariata and then they're just kind of growing their hair back. So it's so unpredictable, you know? So the last question that I have for you is a lot of people that are in the hair loss community that have gone to a dermatologist have said that there were no recommendations for therapy or community. Are there any new ways dermatologist offices are making sure to have those options available alongside treatments? So
0: as far as community, I really think that the National Alopecia Areata Foundation, which can be found at naaf.org, is a huge and wonderful resource for patients. This is a great starting place for patients. I often recommend patients visit this website just because there's so much information and so many resources out there. They have small groups um, that you can kind of find your Type of hair loss and support system there. Depending on where you live, there are actually dermatologists that specifically treat and specialize in hair loss. So in New Orleans, we have a world renowned hair loss specialist, Dr. Nicole Rogers. She's incredible. Um, And so for patients that, you know, if it is over my head or I'm just like, look, I really want you to go get a second opinion or at least be evaluated you know, I'll often refer patients there just for that extra set of eyes and someone mm-hmm. that, you know, truly specializes in hair loss. So that is available for some people. And then as far as therapy goes, I mean, I think again, we've kind of touched on alopecia areata specifically, but all types of alopecia are very emotional, very stressful it can take a toll in your personal, mental, physical life in so many ways. And so I think seeking help from a therapist or some sort of counselor is just huge. And it's definitely something not to overlook.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I remember when I went, like it was yesterday, when I went to the salon and they were like, Hey, that's a bald spot in the back of your head. I honestly. Thought it was because I wore extensions, clip-ins extensions. I thought it just tugged too much on my hair and I didn't think anything of it. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, okay. And when I left that appointment, I kind of sat there and I was like, No, there's no way I have hair loss. Like that, that's not a thing. I, I can't have it. So I waited a little bit before I made that appointment. But when I did, right after that appointment, I just got stressed because she told me that I had alopecia. And I swear that stress just made my alopecia run rampant. And I just started losing hair left and right. I didn't know what to do. That's when, you know, I found out about NAF and I still was scared. I was like, oh no, I don't want to know anybody with hair loss. And it took me many years to kind of come out of my shell to talk to other people with alopecia. So, I mean, I I really wish that I tried a little harder to meet people uh, with alopecia because, it's done my life and my hair loss journey so much good. So I'm so happy to hear that you recommend stuff like that because it's, it's very much needed. I mean, like if people want to go the treatment route, I'm all for it. I also think everyone in all types of life should have a community and have people to talk to that can relate to them. So I think that's awesome that that you recommend that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, that is the last of the questions that everybody submitted and that I had for you. So I just wanted to give you a big thank you for being here to share your knowledge and to answer questions in regards to the medical side of hair loss. It's been awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a huge honor and such a treat. Yeah, this has been great. If you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can email the show at at gmail.com or send a message on Instagram or Facebook. All of the links to everything you need is in the direct me, which you will be able to find in the episode description. Until next time, guys, pack out.